Hello, everybody, and Happy New Year to you. Hope that you had a great time with your family throughout Christmas and throughout New Year's Eve. And welcome to 2024. And you're listening to Season 11 of the Disciple Makers Podcast. Glad to have you all back. Today's episode features Donnie Williams. He's the lead pastor of LifePoint Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. He discusses the importance of intentional discipleship and the need for a biblical worldview in today's culture. The bad news is only 6% of Christians have a biblical worldview today, which means we have a desperate need to align discipleship with Scripture and confront the cultural lies by teaching God's Word. Donnie gives us hope by encouraging us to start small, stay consistent, and to keep pushing to multiply our disciple-making efforts. I thought today's episode was fantastic, and you're really going to enjoy this and be encouraged. Let's jump in and hear from Donnie. Thank you so much for being here to uh, learn how to make disciples better and learn how to make disciples that make disciples. I believe what we've been talking about, if you go apply, you're going to see and feel traction in your ministry. So when, when uh, our first two were little, they, uh, they wanted a dog really badly. And so we got him a puppy. And it was, I, I never had a dog in the house. I grew up in the country. And the way we got a dog in the country, how many country people in here? You got a dog when somebody put one out, right? And they left it. Anybody can anybody relate to that? You didn't go buy a dog. That was the most foreign thought. Like purchase a dog. They're like free. They're just running, running, roaming in the country. But uh, I went and bought a dog. It was a little white powder puff dog. And so we got the dog and I began to like the dog. And one day the dog was about two years old and it, uh, she could no longer move her back legs. And so she's walking around and just dragging her back legs. And because we live here in Raleigh, we actually live down closer to the vet school at NC State. Uh, we took her there at $110 a night. Yeah, so I'm doing the math. You know, it's like 110 a night, new dog costs this much, you know, trying to figure all that out. One day I'm at the office and Cinda calls me and says, hey, they know what's wrong with Daisy. You need to go by there so they can tell you. And so I go by and we sit down in this, this little room and the two vets come in and they're explaining, they're putting up x-rays and they're talking about a tumor on her spine and, and you know how bad that is, but they think they can fix it. They really think they can do this experimental type surgery and maybe she would survive. And if she did survive, they would have to uh, fit her with a doggy wheelchair and then teach us how to expel her bladder twice a day. And I'm thinking, all right, I like this dog. I love my children. Uh, so how much is that going to cost? And they were like $4,000. I was like, hold on a second. So I go outside, call my wife. She picks up first thing she says, how's Daisy? And I was like, she's not going to make it, honey. Like, now I've told that story before and gotten hate emails, but I cried like everybody else. I didn't have $4,000 to spend on a dog and she crossed the rainbow bridge. If we're all honest with ourselves, you think back over the last several years of ministry and how hard it's been, right? It's been hard. Jesus never told us it's going to be easy. And you think back about how difficult it's been. If you're honest with yourselves, there have been times where you've said, I don't think we're going to make it. Anybody said that? I'm not sure if we're going to make it through this. I don't know if the church is going to continue. I don't know if I'm still going to be able to make it. We all experienced something over the last three years, which was kind of a reset of everything we know. Every method we ever thought about, and we watched the world 
be divided wider and wider and wider. Earlier, Chris talked about all these experts in his church. I was noticing that too. People an expert on everything. I'm scrolling through social media and I'm watching people who loved Jesus, who know, I thought knew the word of God, but they were dedicated to Christ and they were watching things happen out in the world and they were responding in the most unbiblical ways you could imagine. Anybody else see that? And I was watching that like, I'm responsible for teaching some of these people. What's happening when they want to give some kind of an answer about how do you have a conversation about racism or race? How do you have that conversation about racial reconciliation from a biblical perspective? Now, they were having the conversation, but it wasn't from a biblical perspective because God's word deals with that. And when we use God's word, it gets healed. And watching people make comments about sexuality or politics and realizing there are biblical answers to everything you're trying to answer, but you have been so discipled by the world, you're giving the world's answers. There can be no discipleship without the word of God at the core. You cannot disciple somebody and not use God's word to do it. Now, it doesn't mean you're like there putting in their face all the time, but you have to use the principles and the literal word of God to help disciple people. So how did we get here? How did we get to a place where people who would say, yes, I'm a Christian, but give answers to issues in our culture that were anything but Christian? How did we get there? Several months ago, I read this study from Arizona Christian University. George Barna works there. He put this study out and he asked people if they were Christian. And you know what they found out? 68% of the United States people say, yes, I'm a Christian. And I thought, that's pretty good. 68%. It doesn't quite match with what I'm seeing, but at least 68% of the people are saying, yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I would fall under the banner of being a Christian. But then when you dig a little deeper, here's what you see. Here's what they found. When the question wasn't just, are you a Christian? It was, do you have a biblical worldview? And here's what they meant by biblical worldview. Do you believe in a literal heaven and hell? Uh, do you believe in Jesus's atonement for our sins? Questions like, do you believe that Jesus is the only way to God? Do you believe that the Bible has authority in your life? And do you live under the authority of Scripture? And it's supernaturally inspired by God. When they asked the 68% of the people those questions, that number, it went down. That number was 6%. 6% of people who claim to be a follower of Jesus or claim to be a Christian, have a biblical worldview. So biblical worldview is, is, just to put it simply, a biblical worldview is believing that the word of God is supernatural and we live under the authority of the word of God and it has the answers and it decides all matters of faith and practice and morality. 6%.
So now rewind back to seeing people respond in ways that were unbelievable about whatever's going on in our culture. And now you can understand, well, that's why people don't know how to answer hard cultural questions. It's because they don't have a biblical worldview. It gets even more discouraging. This is how many pastors have a biblical worldview. 41%. Now that's all pastors. If you put just youth pastors on there, I'm embarrassed to put that number up there. It's even higher of how many don't have and don't live with and teach with a biblical worldview. So if we're discipling people, here's, here's a couple of really big questions that we need to ask ourselves. What are we discipling people to? What are we discipling them toward? And if you truly knew how to disciple someone, would you do it? See, because here's what's happened. The last three years, everything I, all the stats I just gave you and all the observations about how Christians were reacting and acting over the last several years and, and now, that gives us a grade in the church about how we're doing at making disciples. It's not a good grade. If on the 10-point scale, we might have a D, maybe, and that's being generous. So the next question to ask is, well, if that's all that's true, how did we get here? How did we get to the place where somebody that says, I follow Jesus, and they don't know how to have a grace-filled, kind, patient conversation about someone when it comes to sexuality? They don't know how to do it. They're either silent or rude. They're either a jerk about it or they don't say anything about it. So how did we get there? Well, in the 1950s and 60s, the church growth movement began. Now, if you've ever been involved in a church plant, how many in here? All right, quite a few of us. So the church growth movement eventually led to the church planting movement. And here was the philosophy that I used, that probably most of the people in this room used, is that if we got a, a place to meet where we could gather people, we could put them in rows, we could get somebody that could hold their attention for 30 minutes. And if we could get a band that was like awesome, that could play, also play some top 40 stuff, people would fill up the room. And that's what happened over and over and over. The teaching was dynamic enough and the guy was entertaining enough and the music was good enough. Even if we got to pay the people, every person to play everything, if we do that, it will fill up rooms, and it did. Over and over. There's more bigger churches now than at any time in the past. More churches over 10,000, more churches over 5,000 than at any point in the past. But how does that method of doing church turn out disciples? Because according to what I just told you, the best that method can produce is Christians of whom 6% have a biblical worldview. It can produce pastors of whom 41% have a biblical worldview. So what's the answer? 
If the best we've been able to produce, what's the answer? Because I think a new plan is needed. It doesn't mean that we don't have compelling times together where great teaching is done, where strong times of worship happen, where people feel a connection with God. And even if that means haze and smoke and lasers and all that, that's fine. It doesn't mean you throw all that out. But if that's all you do, and that drives everything that you do, you won't make disciples. So a new plan is needed. And it's exactly what we've been talking about, intentional discipleship. Hey, let me interrupt for just a second so that you can hear a brief message from our sponsors. Here they are. Wouldn't it be great if someone who knew what they were doing, who actually had proven results, would just share with you exactly how to make disciples? Hi, I'm Doug Burrier, a decision scientist and a real-life disciple maker. This year, I'm discipling six of my neighbors. That's crazy. They don't even go to our church. My friends and I made 1,392 disciples last year. So if you're tired of hearing the same old blog and keynote messages, droning on about the why, the need, and the theory, I want to invite you to hear the simple how-tos that have bunches of churches and hundreds of people making thousands of disciples all around the world. How to recruit, how to get them to love reading the Bible, how to transform them, how to run a meeting, like a real proven agenda, how to make individual disciples in a group setting, how to give people the wonderful, abundant life that God promised them. This is what I found in sustainable discipleship. It's not materials. It's not another program. It's a simple, repeatable set of how-tos. If you're ready for something proven, practical, and different, visit sustainable-discipleship.com. That's sustainable-discipleship.com. The team will be happy to share with you everything God shared with them. All right, let's get back to the episode. See, intentional discipleship starts not with somebody being a project, not with an agenda, but it starts with realizing how could I disciple someone who could then in turn go do the same thing with somebody else? That's what Jesus did. If you read, just just read the first three chapters of Acts. People accepted Christ. There's one episode at the end of Acts chapter two, 3,000 plus people. It was a lot more than 3,000 because they just counted the men in those days. So it was a lot more than 3,000 people said yes to Jesus. And then those people went away from Jerusalem that day and they went back to their homes and they started discipling other people. You read later in Acts chapter four, how they were doing that, what they were doing, how they were spending time together. And they did that over and over and over. And I was just talking to somebody earlier today about doing Ancestry.com and finding out where you came from and how that's kind of cool to do. If we do our spiritual family tree, every single one of us, could, if we could do this, if we had records, we could trace our spiritual family tree back to Acts chapter two, every single one of us. Because those people who first accepted the message of Christ and got serious about discipleship, sharing with other people so they could share with other people, so they could do life together, and just on down through the centuries, we could get right here to November of 2023 and say, we're here because somebody there got serious about discipleship. Fast forward 2,000 years from now. Our, this church, none of our churches will probably exist, but if they do, wouldn't it be great if somebody could look back, because we'll have records then and say, I can trace everything back to 2023 when a group of people in America got serious about sharing the message of Christ and the lifestyle of Christ with others 
and helping put that into other people's lives, and then so on and so on and so on. And then here we are all these years later. If we're going to have intentional discipleship, one of the areas that you will have to have in your church, in your organization, is alignment. Intentional discipleship is aligned discipleship. Here at our church, if you're going to be, I mentioned earlier, but if you're going to be a leader on staff, we have an alignment document that everybody has to sign. And that's not to be rigid. That's not to be legalistic, but it's saying, if you're going to be a representative of Jesus and share his words from the Bible with other people, we're going to be aligned on some very key cultural and theological issues to make sure we're all playing the same play. I give the same talk every August to all of our group leaders, and some of our group leaders are in here. You could give the talk. I say, how many plays are on the football field at one time if you're on offense? One. If you're on defense, one. What if every offensive player went out and had their own play? It would be chaos. And so we need alignment because when everybody's trying to play their play, a lot of action might be happening, but it's chaos. And what that looks like in the church, a lot of stuff might be going on, a lot of activity, but disciples aren't being made and people aren't getting to know Jesus. So what should our play be? Our play needs to be to disciple people to have a biblical worldview. You can't have discipleship without scripture. And we have to disciple people to have a biblical worldview because if we don't do that, the world will disciple people to agree with it. And it's doing a better job right now. We don't have God's word in front of us. Like most people don't have God's word in front of them 24-7. Most people don't stand in line at the grocery store and scroll through the Bible, but they scroll through lots of other stuff. Most people aren't sitting at church I mean, I get a need advantage point. And all of you that, that speak, you look out. I can see people scrolling through social media. Like they're laughing. I didn't say anything funny. Like, I don't, what, what are you looking at? What are you shaking your head for? And they're looking on social media. And I've thought about calling people out, but I wouldn't do that. So here, here's how we disciple for biblical worldview. Everything is discipleship. Everything that we do. Teaching, that's discipleship. Teaching through God's word, that's discipleship. Now, that's not always discipleship because sometimes teaching is done just to make uh, people get like three points to be happy or three things to find, you know, teaching like that. And that's not bad, but does that lead people to become disciples of Christ? And I, and I had a moment in, in my ministry when I was looking out at the world thinking, uh, it's going to fall apart. Experts were saying the church will never be the same. Pastors better find another way to make a living. People will never gather again. And I remember making a, a commitment to God. God, I, I am going to preach your word no matter how many people show up. Doesn't matter. The room's full. The room's not full. I'm going to teach your word to people because they so desperately need it because they want to have answers and I see them trying to answer, doing a poor job, and it's definitely not biblical. And so the time I get for 30 or so minutes a week, I know my team's back there going 30. 
the time I get and the time those of you that have that privilege of speaking God's word every week, why not use that for a time of discipleship? People are already gathered in a room. They're not here to be entertained. Why not teach them God's word and how to use it for discernment? So teaching is discipleship. Bible studies, that's discipleship. Now, Bible studies can also just be informational and let's meet together and get information about the Bible, but they can also be discipleship. You just have to ask two questions. Read scripture and say, what does this mean? Not what does it mean to me? That's not really relevant. What does it mean to me? And the other question is, how, does it, how do I apply this to my life? What does this mean? Like in its context, what, does these, what do these words mean? And how do I apply this to my life? And then the third way is one-on-one. Every disciple making a disciple. And so I have some teaching principles. They're up here on the screen that I use every week. And everybody that teaches at our church, I say, here's our teaching principles. And these can also be discipling principles. When you're thinking about what am I trying to teach somebody or to help somebody understand. One is, well, we're teaching God's word, not just to minister to somebody's heart or change them, but it's also to confront culture. Culture is full of lies. Has anybody noticed that? God's word properly taught can teach people how to discern those lies. And so a teaching value that we should all have that I operate with, I'm gonna teach God's word in a way that helps people confront the lies that are in front of them in culture. If we're not gonna teach for discernment, what are we teaching about? Another one is reveal the gospel in daily life. When we're teaching or sharing with somebody else, we we wanna help reveal the gospel to them. And then guide others in personal responsibility to personally implement the teachings of Jesus in my life and teach other people how to do that. When Jesus called his first disciples, he said, come and follow me. And they were fishing. And he said, come follow me. And what? I'm going to teach you how to fish for people or fish for men. I'm going to teach you. That's what a disciple does. A disciple fishes for other people and finds other people. So here's, here's, here's a few quick ways to start discipling disciple makers. It can be overwhelming when you come to a conference and you hear talks that have points and action plans. And I'll go to a conference and then like eight years later, I'll pull out the notebook and go, that was such good stuff. Anybody else see that? And it's like, it's outdated now, but that was really good. And I never did anything with it. Well, here's just some quick things you can do. Start small. Just start really small. Right now, our staff here at our church, I want to help them. They all have a biblical worldview, but I want to help them learn how to help others have a biblical worldview. So we're just doing this really simple book called 30 Days to Understanding the Scriptures. It's by a guy named Max Anders. And as we've gone through that together as a staff, what we're going to do after that is we're each going to find three to five people, and then we're going to go through it with them. If you do the math, if everybody does that a year from now, that'd be about a thousand people who have a greater confidence in the word of God. Because you can't have a biblical worldview without understanding more, more about the Bible. They, our biblical worldview, guess where that comes from? The Bible. And so it's just a simple, 
30-day book that says, here's how the Bible's laid out. Here's what the books mean. And it's, it's been really good to go through and by repetition, learn what the Bible's all about. Stay consistent. Like, keep it going. Meet with somebody else. Meet with somebody else. And then don't compromise. Here's what I mean by not compromising. Pushing to multiply. There were several questions about this. I didn't get to them as you guys were asking the questions. But when it comes to multiplying a group, here's the first thing that you will hear. Well, we like each other. We don't want to like split our group up. We've been together for a long time. And that's what you have to put, just push through. Every time we've tried to multiply groups, is that not what we hear? Every single time, push, push through it. Imagine if those 3,000 people in Acts chapter two would have said, we're good. There's a lot of people. It's enough. We don't want any more. Y'all go do that Bible study. You do that one. We're okay. We wouldn't be here today if that had happened. Push to multiply. You know, there's two churches talked about at the end of Revelation chapter three, the church in Philadelphia and the church in Laodicea. Jesus had nothing but good things to say about the church in Philadelphia. He had nothing good to say to the church in Laodicea. They were both in the same area of the world. They both had the same opportunities in front of them. One, Philadelphia was very discouraged. They were struggling and Jesus brought them words of encouragement. That's all he had for them was encouragement. And history tells us that this church in Philadelphia actually became a church planting church that planted churches as far away as India. In the middle of their discouragement, in the middle of persecution, in the middle of the culture not agreeing with them, Jesus comes and gives them the teaching that, hey, I've put an open door before you. And scholars think that open door was their opportunity to spread the gospel around the world at that time. And that's exactly what they did. They were poor and they were discouraged. And yet they discipled people and planted churches. And then the church in Laodicea was rich. They had everything they wanted. They didn't do anything. That's what Jesus told them. You're doing nothing. Which church are we going to be? Which church are you going to lead? I think in our time, we can change the 6%. Who wants to do that? Thank you so much for listening to the episode today, everybody. Up next, we're going to be jumping into the Q&A session with Donnie, Brandon Gendon, and our point leader, Bobby Harrington. So make sure you hit the subscribe button so you know when I release that next episode. And as always, thank you so much for being a listener of the Disciple Makers podcast. And I hope that you enjoy the rest of your day. God bless. God bless.